Today's podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit DavenantHall.com and hear more at the conclusion of this podcast. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm your host, Carl Truman, professor in the Coldwood School of Arts and Humanities at Grove City College in beautiful Western Pennsylvania. Uh, normally, I'm joined by my co-host, Todd Pruitt, pastor of uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. But unfortunately, Todd is not well today. So for only the fourth or fifth time in about 12 or 13 years, I think, I'm going to be flying solo. And if you think that my solo performance is a massive improvement uh, on when Todd's on the program, please write in and tell the producers and maybe we can get him fired. Uh, that is where we want to go with, with this little experiment. Listeners will know and those who read my stuff uh, uh, over the last couple of years will know that uh, really the last three or four years, some of the people that have had most impact on the way that I think about many of the contemporary cultural issues we're facing are actually Catholic women writers. Uh, Erica Bakiocchi's book, uh, The Rights of Women, had a huge impact on me when I read it two years ago. And I actually nominated it when I was asked by a magazine, you know, name your book of the year. It was Erica Bakiocchi's Rights of uh, Women that I nominated. Last year, the same magazine asked me to nominate the book of the year. And again, it was a very straightforward choice. It wasn't Erica Bakayoki this time. It was a book entitled uh, The Genesis of Gender by Abigail Favale. Uh, professor Favale uh, is a PhD, uh, a writer and professor in the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I always wince when I say that because an Englishman, I want to say Notre Dame, but it's I know for you <laughs> Americans, Notre Dame, I'm translating on the hoof here. Uh, she has an academic study, uh, academic background in gender studies. Indeed, she's uh, studied gender theory at the very highest level uh, in Europe and has the good taste uh, to have studied in Scotland, my wife's homeland, and of course, where I myself got my PhD. And it's a real pleasure and a real privilege uh, to welcome uh, Professor Favale to the podcast today. And my big hope for this podcast is that it will bring the attention of this book, The Genesis of Gender, to a Protestant audience. It's published by Ignatius Press. And it would be a great shame if this book, which I think is one of the clearest and most helpful introductions and analyses of the gender question out there today, it would be a great shame if Protestant pastors, Protestant parents, Protestant lay people uh, did not buy this book and read it, because I think it really will help us all to think through exactly what's going on in our culture at the moment. So, Abigail, it's a real pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you so much. That was such a great introduction. Although I think it's, I think you should say it, Notre Dame, no not Notre, say Notre. See how painful that is. No, 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 Notre Dame. That's, 
<laughs> Isn't it say, terrible? Yeah. American pronunciation puzzles me, but for years <laughs> when I arrived here, I would go to restaurants and I would order a glass of Merlot. And mm -hmm. the waiter would bring me a glass of Miller beer, oh, which isn't even really right. beer. And finally, I worked out that it's actually Merlot that Merlo, Americans say. Yes. So now when I order wine, I say, can I have a glass of Merlot, please? And I get <laughs> what I'm asking for. There you so. go. <laughs> but it's a great pleasure to meet you. I came across your work actually through the, I think it's a mutual friend of ours, uh, Nathan Pinkowski. Mm -hmm. I was having a conversation with Nathan Pinkowski at a First Things event in New York, and Nathan said to me, have you heard of uh, the work of Abigail Favale? And I said, no. And he said, you need to go and look her up. You need to start reading uh, this this academic's work. And I so I found your website uh, and then found the book last year, uh, a great book. And I'm going to start kicking us off with a, with a question that uh, I think was easy to answer the day before yesterday. <laughs> but has proved in in recent times to be perplexing even to some of the sharpest political and legal minds of our generation. The question, of course, is, Abigail, what is a woman? Yes, that is a fantastic question. So I remember struggling with this question actually back in the early aughts um, as a philosophy undergrad, because I I I had this sense like, of course, I knew what a woman was and intuitively could could define it. But at the same time, I wasn't sure how to answer the what about a re, you know, like what about a woman who's had a hysterectomy or what about an infertile woman? Right. Um, so now I would say one thing, one philosophical distinction that's helped me um, address those what abouts is the distinction between actuality and potential. Um, so basically the definition I give is that a woman is the kind of human being whose body is organized according to the potential to gestate new life, right? And then conversely, a man is the kind of human being whose body is organized according to the potential to create new life outside of himself, right? Um, so even in the cases of infertility, for example, fertility and infertility are actually categories that themselves point to some essential potential that's for some reason not being able to be actualized, right? So if you have a, there's a man who can't get pregnant, you wouldn't say, wow, he's infertile, right? Because he never had that inherent potential anyway. So even if that potential is never actualized, it very much shapes our entire physical being. And it's a structural category, right? It's the way the body's organized. I think in this conversation about what is sex? What is gender? People often talk about sex in terms of like body parts or these disparate little characteristics that have no totalizing organizational logic to them, right? So you have to look at the whole picture. But that's the definition of woman um, that I think is pretty honestly unassailable. Interesting. And how would you respond to, say, a, a, a contemporary feminist thinker who'd say, well, yes, but of course, they may not put it in quite as blunt terms as this, and, and you you do allude to this in, in your book. What would you say to a feminist thing and say, yes, but that's the problem of the body, mm -hmm. that actually all of these things you're pointing to as being of the, as of the essence of woman, these are actually things that that oppress us, that, that prevent us from being who we want to be. The, the fact that uh, I can, well, I can't, but if I was a woman, the fact that I can become pregnant, mm -hmm. um, that's 
that's problematic. That's preventing me from realizing my true potential as X, Y, or Z. How would you respond to that kind of pushback? Well, I guess I would point out that, and I think this is a true criticism of feminist thought, especially since second wave feminism in the middle of the 20th century, that that kind of feminism ironically has a masculine bias or a bias toward male physiology, right? And actually pathologizes femaleness. So how could a movement or an ideology actually defend the dignity of women if there's this underlying discomfort or distaste for femaleness itself? Um, so that's one of the things I would, I would point out. Um, but also I would say that it seems like there's something wrong with that version of feminism's understanding of the good life, human flourishing, and freedom, right? Because it's positing freedom and flourishing for women as being at odds with their nature. So women essentially have to go to war with their bodies in order to find true freedom. And so I, I would say that that is an impoverished form of feminism. That's interesting. It actually reminds me of an exchange I had. Uh, I was speaking uh, a couple of weeks ago at a college on the West Coast. I, I won't name the college because I was protested when I was there. Oh, fun. Mm. Protested very politely. I have no complaints about yes. the protesters. They came to my lecture. They listened politely. They asked some questions. They left. And then they, they protested in a very civilized way. I actually texted Phil Munoz at, at uh, Nodra Dame. Uh, to say, uh, now I can stand with you as a man because you've been protested and I've been yeah. protested. But I, it, in my talk, I'd made a comment about a, a sign at a pro-abortion rally I'd seen recently that read, uh, uh, consent to sex is not consent to pregnancy. Mm. And I made the point about that sign. I was really talking about the role of technology. And I said, that sign only makes sense in a technological world because 150 years ago, consent to sex was at least consent to the possibility of pregnancy. And one of the, I, th I think it was one of the protesters, asked the question, um, yes, but consent to sex has never been consent to men getting pregnant. It's only ever been women. There is this asymmetry. And isn't that unfair? Mm. And I think what you're saying really is it's only unfair if you regard the female body as being flawed in not yes. being a male body because you have that. And that, yes. of course, has a whole different philosophy of what sex is about. I mean, perhaps you could touch on the philosophy of sexual relations as, as connecting to this. Right. I would also say that probably some of the some of the illogic, I guess, behind that statement would be that equality requires sameness. Right. So it's not possible to have equal dignity if there is asymmetry. And so what has often happened then in kind of the response to women's oppression in society is the downplaying of difference um, and in terms of the feminist movement. But again, that leads to the problems we're already talking about, where women are measured according to a male standard and found wanting just because of the kinds of bodies that we are. Um, that's yeah, that's interesting. And it it's sort of send this is a, as a bit of a tangent, but it reminds me. I mean, we both have an interest in, in the transgender issue. It reminds me of the Vanity, I think it was Vanity Fair cover with Bruce slash Caitlyn Jenner on it in 2015. What struck me as interesting, and I get the students to think about this in class, is that uh, Jenner presented himself very much as a male fantasy 
of what a woman should be. Uh, it's very interesting, I think, how male normativity seems to be something that, that permeates all sides of this debate. Do you think it's a fair observation? Yes, I do. And I think I think I might even put it more strongly in the sense that I think we now live in a culture where pornography shapes our understanding of what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a man. Um, and I mean pornography in kind of like a general sense. So not just pornography itself, but also kind of pornified culture. The right, where we the aesthetics yes. of the culture, yeah. Yes, exactly. And you had mentioned technology earlier. And so one of the arguments I make in my book is that a big shift in the conversation of sex and gender is the development of the birth control pill and our culture accepting that as kind of a normative practice, right? So becoming a contraceptive culture. And I make the argument that this has profoundly reshaped our social imaginary, right? You use that concept in your yeah. own writing, where we now have this kind of default intuition of sterility. Like we no longer think of men and women primarily as representing different procreative realities. We think in terms of roles. We think in terms of fashion. We think in terms of externalities and superficialities. And so then the logic, you know, follows from there that if you can mimic that, those externalities, if you can achieve a certain appearance, if you can take on a particular social role, then that's what it means to become the other sex or to to change to the other sex. Because we no longer think in terms of, of procreation, that's like receded into the background. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. And one of my favorite uh, chapters in your book is where you discuss the gender theory of Judith Butler. Judith Butler, I, I know she can write clear English because I've read stuff that's straightforward to read by, but her gender theory is it, it's like the worst kind of Hegelian ease mm -hmm. or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But your chapter, and I've been recommending this both to students, colleagues at Grove and to some pastors saying, if you want to understand what gender theory is about, why it's so radical, then read Abigail Fabali's chapter on, on Judith Butler and, and gender theory. I wonder if you could give our listeners uh, a summary, because it, you present in a remarkably lucid and comprehensible form that which is typically quite rebarbative and opaque in the way that gender theorists write about. Yes, yes Judith Butler is, is really painful to read, her gender theory anyway, right? I think it's intentionally obtuse. Um, Interesting. Just as a quick kind of contextual backdrop. So prior to Judith Butler, we have the kind of classic second wave feminist split between sex and gender, where sex is seen as something biological or biological sex. And then gender, those are the social and cultural scripts and norms that are attributed to biological sex and often read as natural. Okay, so that's that's where we're working with feminists in feminist theory. So Gender is a construct, social construct, sex is biological. So Judith Butler comes onto the scene and she makes the argument that not only is gender a social construct, but sex itself is also a construct. So she's not denying that there are biological differences. What she is arguing is that the categories that we impose or we interpret those in, in differences into these stable categories of male and female, that that's a a social fiction rather than a matter of fact. So basically what she's saying is that everything is gender. 
sex itself is gender. So it's almost like I imagine gender is like this big Pac-Man that just goes and like swallows, has now swallowed up anything um, related to sex or anything that we would normally associate with male, female, man, woman. It now links to gender um, rather than than sex. And that idea of gender is this social construct. So she's making the argument that gender is the socially compelled performance, that it's basically the script that we enter into as soon as we're born and we internalize and then unconsciously perform constantly. And it's this performance that creates the illusion of an essence. That's how she puts it. So we think we're expressing our gender. We think we're expressing something true and real about ourselves, but actually it is the expression itself that is the thing. It's only a performance. Yeah. So she's, I think what, you know, when I taught her in the past, students would often really like her theories because they would just kind of see almost that first level that she's saying that we perform our gender and they're like, yeah, I do, you know, I do my hair this way and I wear this and I'm performing my gender. Right. But they're not realizing, I think what, how radical she's being and and really I call her anti-realist, right? So she's taking a very kind of hardcore social constructionist position where there is no kind of intrinsic meaning or reality to things, but there is only that process of linguistic and social construction that's always happening. Yeah, I think you're pointing there to something. I, when I teach the history of theology, one of the points they make about heresy is that what makes heresy attractive, one of the things is heresies are never completely false. There's yeah. always something there that touches on that. And I, I mean, you make that point with the Jews, but I think you make the point as well when talking about Kimberly Crenshaw and intersectionality. Mm-hmm. And you say that there's some self-evident truth in the idea that you know gender is performance. As a, as an in, you know grew, grew up in England, my notion of masculinity is ultimately somewhat different to you know somebody grown up in Montana. I'm mm-hmm. English. I well, listeners will know and be horrified by this. I don't get. I don't understand guns. That's not part <laughs> of my kind of concept of what it is to be masculine. Uh, nor do I understand expressing emotions. You know, I was taught mm-hmm. to be buttoned up and, and repressed. Uh, and so when Butler sort of talks about generous force, I think you're right to, to a lot of young people that makes intuitive sense because they mm-hmm. do know that a lot of who we are is socially uh, constructed. Uh, what interests me on that front, though, and I mentioned this to you before we started, is when I'm particularly looking at what's going on in America and the medical profession now and the treatment of particularly young kids coming out as trans or whatever is, there's almost a bait and switch going on here. On the one hand, this this thing seems to have its origins in radical social constructivist philosophies. And yet the medical establishment, the LGBTQ movement, the government are increasingly essentializing these psychological states and these performances. Um, I, am I right? Is there a bait and switch here? Is, is there an inconsistency in this? Oh, absolutely. There's an inconsistency. And this is something I've just been wrestling with for the past few months. And I feel like I've now gotten to a place where I I at least have a a version of telling what I think is going on. And so this is this is a contradiction I don't think I was able to go into in depth in my book as much as I wish I could now. So now I think, okay, so one way of talking about it is there the distinction between gender theory, which what I've I've been describing in Butler terms. And she really just dominates gender theory. Like I was, 
I was looking recently at a, just a random textbook I have from OUP in gender studies, and she really establishes the method of gender studies, and then it's just applied in cultural analysis and textual analysis. So yeah. like Judith Butler is gender theory, basically. Yeah. But now we have this phenomenon that I call gender identity theory, and that makes the claim that gender is not this social construct, but it's actually this subjective sense of oneself as a man or a woman or mm -hmm. neither or both that is so deeply real and it can actually be at odds with one's socialization, right? So a child who's male and is being socialized as a boy can suddenly realize his true gender, right? So that idea of this intrinsic, almost pre-social gender identity really seems to be quite different from the Butler gender is just the social construct idea. So what I think has happened is that Judith Butler basically cleared the deck. So she dethroned biological sex, right? And then there was only gender. But human beings aren't hardcore anti-realists. Like there are a few of them out there and, you know, more power to them. But most people think about terms, think about reality in terms of things being real or not. You know, people... Yeah. I think Aristotle's right. All men by nature desire to know. And so I think that a new essentialism has arisen in the in the in kind of that that absence of the reality of sex. And so now we have this rhetoric surrounding like sex being assigned at birth. Sex is not a binary. Sex isn't a spectrum. So sex is the meaning of sex is basically kind of swept to the side. And then what comes in its place is that gender identity now takes up that whole space. Yeah. So it, there is this bait and switch or this, this paradox that's happening where gender identity theory depends upon the anti-realism, yeah. even as it's pivoting to assert a new realism yeah. that is at odds with the body or separate from the body. Yeah, because it seems to me that the way that the gender dysphoric person would identify those inner feelings has to be connected to social expectations, horizons of plausibility, performance, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I'm I'm always glad when somebody who knows what they're talking about <laughs> confirms what I'm thinking. It's sort of, right. okay, I, I, I've been tracking in the right direction. So that's that's very helpful. A couple of more, a couple of things uh, as we sort of start to bring things to, to a close here. One of the interesting things you bring out in your book is the connection between so much of the the origins of gender theory and kind of continental philosophy mm -hmm. and people who either defended or had a vested interest in pedophilia, pedophilia. Mm -hmm. uh, could you talk just briefly about that? I mean, just because somebody holds an obnoxious position doesn't discredit the whole of their thinking. But right. it does strike me that when you're dealing with Michel Foucault or even Sartre and de Beauvoir, these right. are people who have a vested interest in living their lives certain ways that right. has to be seen as connecting their philosophy in some way. Right. Um, so, yeah. So one one of the things I mentioned in the book that um, a lot of the, the French intellectuals, the kind of heavy hitting names, but you've just mentioned some of them like Michel Foucault. I don't actually know if Derrida did. I feel like I would have to double check that, but certainly Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, they signed a public petition to remove age of consent laws in France. And this was in the late 70s, I would say. Um, now, on the one hand, I do think that was more just in style among the intellectual elites back then, right? I, I think we were not yet fully into the kind of awareness that we now have as a culture about sexual abuse and its ramifications, right? So it was a different era. It was a very like post-Kinsian, like right up, you know, just 
lots of crazy stuff going on. But there is something I think intrin- there is an intrinsic connection between the philosophy that is basically meant to reject and upend any norms surrounding sexuality. And Judith Butler is explicit about this, right? I mean, if you if she's trying to denaturalize heterosexuality, so the and so and also to denaturalize or denormalize any kind of claims or norms or rules around sexuality. And, you know, she actually writes like kind of about against the incest taboo, right? Um, that, yeah, maybe there are certain, you know, it's like, a, it's more of a culture, con- cultural construct than we think. So I think when you, when you go down that road, you can't hold the lines you want to hold. It becomes, it becomes kind of a, an incoherent position. Um, it reminds me of like Ovid's Metamorphoses. There's one of the tales that he tells about um, the character who ends up sleeping with her. She falls in love with her father and then tries to seduce him or whatever. But it's really fascinating because there's this oh, this internal dialogue that she's having with herself where she's like, ta- she basically is like, well, you know, some cultures think this about sex. Some cultures think this about sex. There isn't ir- really anything natural or normative about sex. And then she'll kind of switch to the other side, but like, no, this, you know, incest is terrible. It's bad. So it's fascinating to read that now as like a 21st yeah. century person and say, you know, Ovid was getting at something, which is yeah. like, if you, if you want to queer all the norms um, around sexuality, then why draw the line at pedophilia or incest, yeah. right? Yeah. It's interesting. I remember reading when I was working on my book, reading Wilhelm Reich's The The Sexual Revolution. The burden of Reich's book, as you know, is, well, sexual morality is designed to maintain the bourgeois dominance of capitalist society, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a very straightforward Marxist argument in many ways. But then he comes to pedophilia and he sort of says, well, of course, this is wrong. And I remember thinking, that's fascinating. Why is that not a bit of, you know, so you're more bourgeois than you think. It's That's a kind of hangover of bourgeois morality there. So, And I, I mean, someone, sorry, just one more point on this. Like, I think, you know, I can just hear someone immediately objecting like, well, there's no, con- it's not consensual because children cannot consent to sex. But then what concerns me, I think, is the erosion of that boundary when it comes to, say, medicalizing surgeries and hormones, right? Where now it's like, no, a 10-year-old, a 12-year-old yeah. is able to consent to lifelong, you know, treatments that lead to sterilization, like blocking puberty. And so that's something that, you know, I think, okay, if if it is that line of consent that's the only thing holding back our culture in affirming pedophilia, well, that line is being pushed right yeah. now, you know, yeah. and that really worries me. Yeah. And as I said in my book, that consent is not absolute with children anyway you know trivial my kids have to eat their greens they have to get better mm-hmm. at a certain time if the adults decide that behavior x is good for kids then we impose it upon them. yes that's um, true yeah, yeah yeah i could talk for hours <laughs> on, on this picking your brains on the subject it's it's been wonderful speaking to you abigail thank you so much for making time in what i know is a, a busy schedule uh, to come on the program i do want to recommend the book Again, to our listeners, uh, The Genesis of Gender, A Christian Theory by Abigail Favale. It's published by Ignatius Press. So Ignatius is not a press that typically crosses the desk of a Protestant pastor, I know. But this is a book that you really need to get hold of. I've been recommending to pastor friends across the country, and I've yet to have anyone come back to me and say, 
that I, I shouldn't have read that book. This is a great book. Mm. You can also visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, and we have a couple of copies that have been generously given to us by the publisher. Mm. You can enter for a chance to, to win a copy there. If you're not lucky enough to win, though, please do buy a copy, read it, get your elders to read it, recommend it to families in your congregation that are struggling with this issue and wondering how to think about it and where it comes from and how to answer those questions, such as what is a woman? Uh, when your teenager asks you or is confronted by some teaching at school that confuses them, make sure that you're well-grounded enough to be able to give a good, faithful answer to that question. In the meantime, all that remains is once again to thank Professor Pavali for joining us. Thank you all for listening. and um, We look forward to being with you in two weeks' time. I want a girl just like the girl that Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses, including two degree programs and PhD supervision. Students can be enrolled at any time during the academic year. Still, in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, so Davenant Hall hosts regular residentials at the Davenant House Study Center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2023 classes running April to June is now open, closing March 29th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class, with a two-hour Zoom class with expert professors each week. Classes include a biblical theology of the sexes with Alistair Roberts, the Reformation in the Modern World with Brad Littlejohn, and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more and DavenantInstitute.org for an even broader perspective. DavenantHall.com